open your Bibles <laughs> to 1 Peter chapter 5 and listen as I read the next segment in our teaching in this great, great epistle. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Peter writes, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, overseeing not under compulsion but willingly according to God and not for dishonest gain but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to you but being examples to the flock." And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Well, this morning we return to this wonderful study of the book of 1 Peter as we find ourselves really now in the very last chapter of this great book. And it's here in chapter 5 that we're going to be faced with what I think is one of the most pressing needs in the church today. It was a need that hung heavy on the heart of the apostle, and that is the need to find men in the church to care for the church. He established and needed those who were already in uh, the position of being elders over the churches in Asia Minor, and he wanted them to present themselves, to prepare themselves in view of the coming suffering to shepherd the flock that God had given them in a very distinctive way. They were to shepherd God's people knowing that the time for judgment was to begin with the household of God. And the first line for this coming judgment was to be the elders whom God had appointed. And that brings a massive amount of sobriety to this passage that Peter has written for us. Shepherds in the church are to be the first in God's divine order to be judged. Shepherds are the first to be judged among the church, and that affects everything he is about to lay before us. We are not seeking the world's gain. We are not seeking to be examples of pagan living. We are instead to be aware of our responsibilities before a holy God. I say that because the work of a shepherd is always in danger of falling into kind of a self-indulgent vocation rather than a holy calling. So Peter, concerned that the leadership in the local church at best be prepared, he exhorts the true shepherds among him to never abandon their post. Because when the fiery trial comes, as it would, the believers in the assemblies would look to their elders for encouragement and direction. And though themselves make themselves a larger target of persecution because they are the leaders of the church, shepherds cannot draw back from shepherding the people of God. Now, if you remember our message last week, we have been seeing that the great apostle had just written to the congregations in Asia Minor, all the churches there from chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, not to be surprised. Don't be surprised when you see the level of sufferings that's about to come. And instead of telling them that they just didn't have enough faith, as you would hear today in some charismatic circles, the apostle of Christ tells them that the churches should expect persecution. It is coming, and they should be aware. He knows they're scared. He knows that they're thrown at the pain that they're being asked to feel for living for Christ. And so he comforts them by preparing them and leading them. And then once he believes that he has said enough to the people, he shifts to the pastors. He first shepherds the sheep, and now he's going to begin to shepherd the shepherds among him. So he says in chapter 1, as we just read, Therefore I exhort the elders among you. 
The fact that he even says, therefore, before this new section connects what he's about to say back to the prior section that we studied last week when we went through verses 19, 17 through 19, where he tells the sheep that there will be a time of judgment and it begins in the household of God. We covered that last time as much as we could. And Peter, therefore, is convinced that before the world is going to be judged, the church of God will be judged. We will be judged first. This is not a judgment unto condemnation as unbelievers who are godless will face. It's a judgment nonetheless. God will purify his church, and the method that he uses for the purification of the church is suffering. That's how he purifies the church. True, there is going to be a future judgment of believers, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, but this judgment that Peter is talking about happens on earth. This judgment is difficult, verse 18, on the one who suffers through it. It will be difficult. And according to verse 19, this kind of suffering for the believer demands that they entrust their souls to God in doing what is right while the rest of the world hates them. Then Peter says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, because of that, I exhort you as an elder among you. So why does he shift his attention away from the people to the pastor at this particular point? Well, the reason being is because Peter's mind in the suffering that he has in mind is rooted upon the elders first because of his Old Testament understanding. The Apostle Peter's Old Testament immersed mind understands that judgment will occur and begin with the household of God, but really begins with the shepherds of God first. Just to show this to you, go with me quickly to Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9, where we have recorded by Ezekiel a vision of massive judgment. It is a vision of slaughter, if you will. But because there had been so many abominations committed in Jerusalem, we find out that God is going to declare through Ezekiel the prophet that judgment must first and foremost start in the temple of God. Ezekiel chapter 9, look at just at verses 5 and 6 with me. But to the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Kill to utter destruction old men, chosen men, virgins, little ones, and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the house. God's elders will be judged first. This is what Ezekiel is pointing to. Who are these elders that are going to be judged? In the Old Testament, this idea of eldership can be traced all the way back to the days of the children of God traveling into the promised land with Moses, as you remember, felt the burden of leadership crushing Moses' shoulders. And so 70 elders were set apart to share in the work of the Lord with him. That's Numbers 11, verse 16 through 30. So these elders historically were to be advisors to the king, uh, colleagues of princes. Uh, they were administers of justice. They sat in the city gates, as you remember we talked about when we were in Proverbs 31. In the synagogue, they also exercised discipline over other members in their flock. And then by the time of Jesus Christ, the elders formed a large section of the Sanhedrin. So the Supreme Court of the Jews was basically the elders, the elders of the Jewish religion. But here in Ezekiel, we see a vision of God's judgment starting first and foremost in the sanctuary with the elders being struck down first. 
The sheep are not judged first. The shepherds are. Now, keep that in mind as you go back to 1 Peter 5. In the light of that, in the light of knowing that there was to be suffering in the church, and in light of the fact that the judgment of God is to purify the church before it punishes the world, and in light of the fact that this purifying judgment will come first and foremost upon the elders of the church, then Peter says, here's how shepherds must shepherd the suffering flock. Here, knowing that must be your marching orders. Elders are appointed to shepherd the sheep through hardship, through hardship. And you can see the same point considering the elders of this context in Acts 14. You don't have to go there, but just note it, Acts 14, 22 and 23, where it says that Paul and Barnabas were to appoint elders in all the churches of Asia Minor in view of the historical context about persecution because it says there, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse 23 of that same chapter, it reads, and they had appointed elders for them in every church. So God dictates that there is a certain order for Christ's body if she is to survive and thrive in the midst of sea of disorder and persecution. And that order in times of persecution demands that God's people have adequate spiritual leadership. If judgment is to begin the house of God, 1 Peter 4, 17, then that house had better be in order or it's going to fall apart. And this explains why Peter wrote this very special message to the leaders of the church to encourage them and to motivate them and to inspire them to do their work faithfully. This explains so much to us. In fact, Jesus even told that his leaders who run away in times of difficulty are only proving that their hirelings are not shepherds, not true shepherds, John 10, 12, 13, and 14. So Peter is very concerned as he comes to the end of this letter to be concerned that the leadership in the local churches in Asia Minor to be at the best level of preparation and the best way they could be prepared is that the true shepherds would never abandon their post. Because when fiery trials come, um, the believers in the assemblies would look to their elders for encouragement and direction. And I think we have seen this so much even in our own church in the last two years with the leadership of our pastor and our elders. With the times that were the hardest, we looked to the elders and our pastor to understand the direction in which we should go. Shepherds cannot draw back from shepherding the people of God. Church is the church. We must be together. They're willingly leading the church even though by doing so, they make themselves a larger target for persecution, again, as we have seen even here in Sun Valley. So Peter gives us in this chapter 5 three incentives, if you're taking notes, three incentives for the elders in the church not to abandon their post so that the church might be guided in their suffering. You could call it three motivations, if you will, three motivations for the shepherds of God not to abandon the sheep of God in the time of their greatest need. And they are this, I'll repeat them again, but you stand in a holy tradition, remember that, you shepherd with a holy commission, and you share in a holy coronation. And I'm going to go through that again. You stand in a holy tradition, you shepherd with a holy commission, and as we shall see, you share in a holy coronation. So let's just look at this as with the time that we have, this first incentive or motivation for elders, for men to rise up to be elders in the church and by being elders in the church to see, number one, 
you stand in a holy tradition. Remember that. Remember that for a motivation when times are hard, that you stand as an elder in a holy tradition. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Stop right there. So Peter, Peter begins this portion of his letter with a very, very personal, if you're picking up what it is that he's writing, very heartfelt appeal to the elders in the church to whom he writes to understand the amazing privilege that they have as elders in the church. And he does this by treating them the same that he wants to be treated by the sheep, by coming alongside them and appealing to them from his heart. He exhorts, verse 1, the elders. He doesn't, if you notice here, he doesn't command them. He doesn't insist with them. He doesn't take his bullhorn out and, and publicly humiliate or intimidate them or anything like that. Rather, he parakaleos them. He, he, he calls to them by their side. He, he entreats them. He's begging them. I always think of the image of running together in a race and beside the person who's right running next to you, that the person's reaching out to you and trying to exhort you, not as one in front of you or behind you, but beside you. And he does this by appealing to them by way of giving them threefold description, get this, of himself. He's describing himself to them as a way to motivate them. It's actually the most extensive self-description that Peter gives us in this entire book. If you remember chapter 1, uh, verse 1, he begins the letter by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he begins by that self-designation. And then he begins this beautiful letter by having first his apostolic credentials to be able to write the church in the very first chapter, but not here at the end of the chapter, at the end of this book. He, he writes instead he, in a different way. He refrains from speaking about his apostolic heritage in exchange for identifying himself first and foremost as just an elder. I'm just an elder. He's not identifying himself as the apostle, but as an elder in the church of God. And by doing so, he's trying to create a sense of mutual regard with the other elders in Asia Minor and a special affection for them as well. The fact that he doesn't speak to them as an apostle, but instead as an elder, is surely to get their attention and is very humbling and very amazing to boot. And once he gets their attention, he calls himself a fellow elder. I'm a, a sub-presbyteros, a word only used here in the New Testament. So he's not speaking down to them. He's not speaking to them as their inferiors. He's a co-laborer, the great apostle Peter, with these other elders in Asia Minor. And so by doing that, if you can just kind of think through that, there's a profound connection that he's trying to make between the, the ministry of elders in the church and that of the office of an apostle. That being that though the elders would never be in the line of an apostle, the leader of the apostles himself saw himself as an elder in the church. That's a pretty profound thing. More than his apostleship, Peter appeals to the elders upon the fact that he shares shepherding struggles with them. He's one of them. Alexander Strauch, in his commentary, writes, Peter was an active shepherd caring for many churches. As a fellow elder, he served daily on the front lines of battle. He knows how difficult the work is and is well acquainted with the many pitfalls, abuses, and temptations of leadership. He also feels the daily pressures and strains of pastoral responsibility. His instruction wells up from a deep spring of life experiences gained by shepherding God's people for more than 30 years. 
So the great apostle calls himself an elder as he appeals to the other elders in the church. And in some way, by calling himself an elder, by, by referring to himself as an elder, Peter doubtlessly was thinking of the commission given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ, the shepherd of the flock in John 21, and we covered some of that last time. The Apostle John also called himself an elder in 2 John 1 and 3 John 1, another apostle. Uh, the early church fathers also wrote of John as an elder and the apostle or apostles as elders. Even though not every elder was an apostle, get this distinction, the apostles were all elders. They served the church as shepherds, all of them. So when Peter speaks to the elders as an elder, he is clearly trying to motivate his church leadership to continue in the witness of the apostles whose testimony continued in the eyewitness experience of Christ. The elders here refer to men who were older, more senior, with no negative connotations, let me let you know that, but rather a sense of being seasoned. I like that word, seasoned. Uh, an elder is translated in English as a presbyter or from the word from the Latin where we get priest. That's how that was derived. In secular practice in ancient Greece, the older men with seniority to serve as ambassadors in other states and advisors uh, were those who managed public affairs. So these were men, let me put it this way, of ripe age. Uh, they, were, they were older men, seasoned men who was committed the direction and the government of individual churches. I do want to emphasize, however, that the context of the biblical use of the concept of elder has less to do with age, per se, than the quality of one's character spiritually and the possession of the ability to teach. Simply being older, uh, including even being older in the faith, doesn't necessarily in and of itself qualify a man for leadership in the church. Uh, both 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, review the qualifications and the appointment of those elders so that men being chosen were true elders. They were overseers. They were shepherds of the flock of God. And I say this to you because Peter wants them to know that even though he's an apostle, even though he's the apostle of God, the lead apostle of the men who were under the Lord Jesus, he appeals to them as elders. That's very, very significant. He wants them to understand, and again, going back to our topic, that they stand in a holy tradition, a holy tradition that he himself is a part of. What is this holy tradition, you might say? Well, look back at verse 1 again. As fellow elders, they are with the apostle Peter, also fellow witnesses of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory to be revealed. Now, what's remarkable here as you look at that, maybe more than the fact that even he calls them fellow elders, is the fact that he speaks of them as being fellow witnesses, where we find out our last week that the word martyr comes from. They were elders, fellow witnesses of the sufferings of Christ. So what a remarkably transparent way that was for him to make a comment like that. Yes, their elders were martyrs of Christ's sufferings in that they shared in them, and they saw people share in them. But he had already spoken to the fact that churches had shared in the sufferings of Christ in chapter 4, verse 13. That was undeniable. But what he is witnessing, he said the sufferings is, is in a much more profound way. Though the Gospels don't actually mention specifically that Peter was present personally at the crucifixion. Um, by the way, that's the same true for the 
12, except for John. It's never mentioned that they were there. We do know that Peter, as well as the others of the 12, may have been among, as Luke 23 says, all of his acquaintances who observed the event from afar. He could have witnessed our Lord's crucifixion, though we can't be sure. Scripture doesn't say specifically. But witnesses of the resurrection and the transfiguration, absolutely, yes, he was there. We know that. Scripture affirms that. But what makes this admission in chapter 5, verse 1, so uh, interesting to be the witness of the sufferings of Christ? What makes that so remarkable for Peter to recall is the fact that he witnessed the sufferings of Christ during his own personal time of failure. He, he was witnessing, yes, but he was witnessing as he was denying. When he looked up and saw Christ looking at him when the cock crowed and was permanently embossed upon his memory that he was the one that everyone else knew that he was the one that had denied him. Peter definitely witnessed Christ's sufferings in a very, very unique way. But he also shared with them in being a partaker of the glory that's to be revealed. So to lead in the church and to witness the Lord's suffering was the common burden that all the elders shared. But the hope of glory was the incentive that gave them courage. The hope of glory that he refers to in chapter 5, verse 1, the glory that is to be revealed. Here's the key. If they are prepared to the church of God to suffer, if they're preparing themselves to suffer, they must remember that they stand in a very long line of godly men, even apostles who have come before them in this holy tradition. This is Peter's motivation to them, to encourage them. One commentator wrote these words, When a man enters the eldership, no small honor is conferred upon him, for he is entering the oldest religious office in the world, whose history can be traced through Christianity and Judaism for 4,000 years, and no small responsibility falls upon him, for he has been ordained a shepherd of the flock of God and a defender of the faith. Surely this is a motivation for the men who are elders in the church to be prepared to suffer. Second motivation, a second motivation and incentive to the elders that Peter cites is that not only do you stand in a holy tradition, as we just noted, but number two, you shepherd with a holy commission. Not only do you stand in a holy tradition, but you shepherd with a holy commission. And we see this in chapter 5, verse 2. He writes, shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. These are the responsibilities of the elders in the church, and these responsibilities define what it means to be an elder. They are commanded to, as you see here in verse 2, shepherd the flock, shepherd the flock. The verb here means to act as a shepherd, to feed and care for the flock. As you know, Judaism in the first century, the occupation of shepherd was actually very lowly. It was generally considered demeaning to be a shepherd. And the shepherds were generally a despised people as a group of men. However, over and over again, it's interesting in the Bible where the idea of shepherding is this metaphor that is used to explain God's love for his people. Uh, the word shepherd held within it a sense of love that must be in the heart of the one who was allotted this weighty charge. Why? The good shepherd 
loves the sheep. The good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, he is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. He knows his sheep intimately. He knows who's been given to him. When our Lord Jesus even speaks of himself as being the ultimate example of the good shepherd, he speaks of himself as the one who leads and protects the sheep, even being willing to lay down his life. It was so wonderful that Corey Welsh was singing about the good shepherd, even Psalm 23 this morning. Jesus' willingness to die for his flock starkly contrasts the hirelings who don't care for the sheep and to depart when the wolves come. They, they let the sheep be ravaged and destroyed. And therefore, by assuming this role, Jesus passes on the responsibility of shepherding the flock to Peter, and Peter passes it off to those leaders in the church as well. So this becomes, if you're following me, this holy commission. He is commissioning them with this same responsibility. By the way, this is not the first time that Peter has spoken of Christians to whom he writes in this way. In 1 Peter 2.25, he speaks of the flock like sheep there as well. They're to understand that once they were continually strained, remember we were there, but now they have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of their souls. He's returning back to this same example. These are the sheep that the elder is to shepherd, continually strained, continually ever dependently being sheep of God's choosing and yet needing God's oversight. It's really amazing when you think about it, and I know you have probably, just how God, of all the animals that he's created, would actually choose the metaphor of his people to be sheep. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing. Warren Wearsby, excellent amplification of this picture as children, uh, God's children being sheep. He says, sheep are clean animals, unlike dog and pigs. That's good. Uh, <laughs> sheep tend to flock together, and God's people need to be together. Sheep are notoriously ignorant and prone to wander away if they do not follow the shepherd. Very true, very true. Uh, sheep are defenseless for the most part, and they need their shepherd to protect them. That's why we have the shepherd's hook. Uh, shepherds are very, uh, sheep are very useful animals. Uh, Jewish shepherds tended their sheep not for the meat, which would have been costly, but for the wool, milk, and lambs. God's people would be useful to him and certainly ought to reproduce themselves by bringing others to Christ. Sheep also, of course, were used as sacrifices, and we ought to be living sacrifices, as Romans 12 tells us. So these are the sheep before us now, and Peter's just reminding the shepherds who will shepherd them of that fact. And also note that he refers to the sheep as those flock of God. Do you get that distinction in verse 2? The, the shepherd, the flock of God among you, meaning that the, you're shepherding a flock that is not your own. It doesn't belong to you. The flock belongs to God. So Peter picks up this picture once again to direct his thoughts towards the elders before him. Those are the sheep. These are the sheep that at the very end of verse 3 have been allotted to your charge. Those allotted to you. What does that mean? Allotted to you. It's the word in the Greek that's used also as for the object that's thrown down to kind of aid one's making of decisions. Uh, it was the method that the Roman soldiers used in, during Christ's crucifixion. They would cast lots, throwing dye for his clothing. It was to refer to the allotted portion of an inheritance or specifically something that you possessed or were in possession of. One lexicon actually adds that it can refer to something that inevitably happens so as to seen as be one one's lot or destiny as used especially of martyrs, fulfilling one's destiny or lot. One 
commentator, Greek lexicon um, master Martin Vincent says that it means not only lot, but it comes from the English word cleric, contrasted to clerk or contracted to clerk, which originally wrote of a minister. So when you think of a, of a clerk, it actually comes from cleric because in the Middle Ages, the cler- clergy were the only persons that knew how to write. And therefore, the extension of that word of a clergy made clerk to have one of its more modern meanings. But here in this context, just to go back, this allotted in verse uh, 3, nor has it over those allotted to you. This idea of being allotted is a divine appointment. These particular people are to be allotted to you with particular care in mind. In other words, the responsibilities that Peter is about to unfold to the shepherds, verse 2a, the shepherd, the flock of God, is given under this overarching idea that the reason these duties are so viable and so vital is to understand that it's because it's part of a holy commission. These people have been given to the elders. They belong to God. You did not earn them. They they do not literally belong to you, but you did not seek them. God has allotted them to you for your care on behalf of him. They are... Verse 2, the flock of God that have been, verse 3, allotted to your charge. You know, today we see so many men, actually before COVID, I might say, that are just so eager to be in leadership. But in Peter's day, it was the very opposite. In view of the suffering that they had to overcome, it took a very courageous man to want to be an elder in the church. And Christ has wanted this weight of responsibility to hang over the shepherds forever, not just in times of peace, and prosperity, but also in times of conflict. So let's go back and just look at, under this second category, these responsibilities together. It's kind of a side note I want to make, the duties that they have to perform because they're compelled to serve, knowing that God has allotted these sheep to their charge. So I usually don't have sub-points in my points, but today I thought it would be good to do that, and I'm bringing them to you as uh, to-be's and not-to-be's. Uh, kind of borrowing from my Shakespearean side. Uh, So we're going to look at what shepherds are to be and not to be. So let's just look at them together. The first to be and not to be here in the text is, number one, shepherds are to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. So the first to be uh, here is looking at the elder and shepherd, is to be looking after the sheep from a di- deep sense of profound responsibility that they have before God. Not as a burden, but as a responsibility. Exercising oversight, episcopia, means literally to look upon and thus to observe, to examine the state of affairs of something, uh, to look after, to oversee them. In the New Testament, it's used only in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, and 1 Peter 5, 2 here, the latter used just to describe the working of shepherding the flock. And it's really, really weighty. It's a great responsibility that he is trying to articulate here because literally this word means watchman upon the sheep. Watchman. Uh, this verb is in the present tense, which pictures that these men are constantly, diligently watching, actively, responsibly overseeing the care of the sheep to their flock. It's a very beautiful but haunting picture as well. It's a very beautiful but difficult picture. Uh, 
I say that in his book, The Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 by Philip Keller, uh, who himself was a sheep owner back in the day and a sheep rancher. He wrote this book about Psalm 23, looking at it through the eyes of a shepherd, himself being one. And he makes the following observation about the role of a shepherd and specifically the use of a shepherd's rod that I referred to earlier. Though we might think of a rod merely just being a, a club that he might use to kind of hurl away any poisonous weeds or, or anything that might danger the sheep, it actually had another use as well. He writes this, In caring for his sheep, the good shepherd, the careful manager, will from time to time make a careful examination of each individual sheep. The picture is a very poignant one. As each animal comes out of the corral and through the gate, it is stopped by the shepherd's outstretched rod. He opens the fleece with the rod. He runs his skillful hands over the body. He feels for any sign of trouble. He examines the sheep with care to see all is well. This is the most searching process in telling every intimate detail, end quote, from a shepherd, a man who's actually shepherd sheep himself. So the shepherd is not just to protect the sheep, but to examine the sheep, to, to make sure and to oversee the sheep, to be constantly examining the flock for their spiritual parasites, if you will, and are ever on the lookout for ravenous wolves, as well as we know who come in sheep's clothing, Matthew 7.15. And he does this work amazingly voluntarily, which is an adverb meaning willingly, of one's own accord of free will, spontaneously. It means you're willing to do something without being forced or pressured to do it. So a shepherd's motive must be willingness. It's not, it's not a sense of external compulsion. It's not a must, if you will, but it's because you're willing to do that for the flock of God. An elder must not feel as if he has to shepherd the flock, but rather he needs to shepherd the flock. It's an office, as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3, that he must aspire to. It must be an internal desire that God has placed within a man who wants to shepherd God's sheep. It's not for the authority that he gives him, because we're going to look at that in a second. Not for the money he could make. Not for the title or position or prestige that might come, but because he wants to guide and protect God's elect. That's the only true motivation. And I think of men like John MacArthur, like John Street, like our elders, who have such a holy, pure desire for the betterment of the sheep. Next, this to be or not to be and the responsibilities of the elders, he says, that they're also first not to be this. They're to be that, but he also says, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. It's, it's interesting in this to be or not to be understanding. The idea of compensating church leadership arose really early in the church. If you want to go back and look at it, you can think of 1 Corinthians 9.7. You can think of Galatians 6.6. 6. But abuse of the privilege also arose at the same time, because the best of men are men at best. 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 6, Titus 1, 2 Peter 2, Jude 11. And the reasons for this are obviously clear. We see so many men fall even today. The love of gain, the love of power are two of the most insidious, most constant, most fatal of the temptations that creep into the elder's life. Covetousness and ambition can rule 
the human heart, as you well know. The inordinate desire to possess for personal gratification, for the love of advancement, prominence, authority, can be two of the most corrupting forces in the human heart imaginable in the heart of an elder. And that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.3 that the elder must be free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. I remember a few years ago, I can't remember exactly uh, the publication, but it was in a Texas, there was a Texas megachurch pastor. I guess that kind of tells you everything right there. And uh, it caused kind of an uproar for, he was asking his congregation, this is literally true, if I had the resources, I'll tell you, Resources, I didn't mean that. That's kind of funny because I'm talking about resources. Uh, His congregation was to help him finance the upgrade of his helicopter blades with a $52 favor seed. This is Bishop, you kind of knew that was coming, Bishop (laughs) Ivy Hilliard of the New Light Christian Church in Houston, Texas, reportedly sent out a conversational uh, newsletter, I'm getting accent, uh, to friends in Jesus... (laughs) Telling them they're just going to sow $52 transportation seed (laughs) would upgrade this breakthrough favor. Actually, let me quote him so I can make the accent work. Um, Does your car need repair or total replacement? Do you have a dream vehicle or luxury automobile you would long to purchase? Noted Hilgard in the opening paragraph of his letter. Our aviation department has an opportunity that will save the ministry well over $50,000 if we will move on it right away. My aviation manager, that's another bad thing right there. You have an aviation manager? (laughs) What? My avi- uh, to get, to call my aviation manager in and co- talk about my helicopter blades. Uh, stated that while repairing our helicopter, they discovered that if we upgrade our blades today, it will save thousands in the days to come, he explained. <laughs> so all you have to do is get $52 each, and we can make those blades sharp. You know, Jude speaks of this kind of shepherding in the description of the men who had crept in unnoticed, if you remember that passage, and were turning the grace of God into uh, a horrible, uh, licentious kind of writing. He says, these are in your love feast, craggy rocks, feasting together with you without fear, caring for themselves, which is the same word that we have here in 1 Peter 5, 2, for shepherding. They they were caring for themselves, shepherding their own hearts and not the hearts of the people. They were shepherding themselves, furthering their own schemes and lusts instead of telling and tending the flock of God themselves. So Peter goes on to say, not only is this is the last to be or not to be in my second point, he also says, nor, if you look at the text there in verse 2, nor lording it over those allotted to your charge. So no shepherd of God is ever to exercise authority in a way that would be seen as lording it over the flock. Lording it over the flock. Lording here includes the idea of domineering, um, the rule of a strong person over the weak. It means to exercise dominion over or to bring under one's power, to bring into subjection, to become the master or gain dominion over someone to subdue. So both Jesus Christ himself and the apostle Peter forbid the use of just arbitrary, arrogant, selfish, excessively restrictive rule, especially in the church. Jesus in Matthew 20, verse 25 through 27, spoke of the tendency and the unbelieving this way. He said, you know that the elders of the the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. 
just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. A man once said that every human being has in his heart a peacock, and the peacock is ever hungering after crumbs, end quote. There's another story I read, it's kind of hard to believe, um, concerning some members of a church actually here on the West Coast who decided to take a family vacation, and that's what they wanted to do. And so the couple purchased their airline tickets and uh, finalized the rest of their plans. And as they were looking forward to this very much-needed time off, Uh, The pastor discovered their plans. He rebuked them for not getting permission first from him, and he warned them not to go on the trip. They went anyway, and shortly after they returned, they were visited by some of the church's leadership. They were informed that by going on vacation against the pastor's wishes, they were in rebellion. To enforce the pastor's authority, there had to be some form of punishment applied, So this couple was then informed that no one from the church was permitted to speak to them or have any contact with them for a time determined by the pastor. Even their children were not permitted to play with any of the other children from the church. There's so many stories like that. There's so many stories like that. This man is not a pastor. He's a lord. He's lording it over them. He should be very dangerous. It says in Ezekiel 34, the Lord condemns the self-centered shepherds who were leading the sheep of Israel only for self-gain or filthy lucre, and they were failing to graze and guide and guard the flock. It says this in Ezekiel 34. You can look at it later, verse 4 through 6. Ezekiel writes, Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them." And they were scattered for a lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through the mountains and on every high hill, and my flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Ezekiel 34, 4 through 6. A similar charge is actually made against the shepherds in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23. And that's what's so sad is when you look through this, you can see so often the the examples of you think, well, this must surely just be something that we're running into today. But of course, uh, the best of men of every age have been the men at best. It says in Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 4, Woe to the shepherds who were destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares Yahweh. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are shepherding my people, you have scattered my flock and banished them and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares Yahweh. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the land where I've banished them and cause them to return to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will shepherd them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified nor will any be left unattended, declares Yahweh. So this was the situation for the early church as well. This was not just Old Testament times, especially, you know, in the case of Diotrephes, who the Apostle John speaks of as the first dictatorial pastor for lording his authority over the Christian congregation. In 3 John 9, we hear of him. John says of Diotrephes, he goes, he loves to be first. He loves to be first among them. He loves to be first. He does not accept what we say. Speaking of an apostle, Diotrephes was a man who wanted to be first in the things of God and yet did it in an ungodly way. 
So what should be the model for elders in the church? Go with me as we end here to Acts 20, Acts chapter 20. We have the model of biblical elders, a plurality of elders that lead in the church of Ephesus. And Paul calls them to his side in his farewell speech in Acts chapter 20, verse 25 through 30. We read, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should keep from, excuse me, where my, my pages are sticking together. There we go. As I'm reading, I'm going wrong verse. Chapter 20, verse 25. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be watchful. This is the heart of an elder. This is the heart of an elder, the duty to protect the church, to, to aim for the fact that they who are in their midst uh, would be protected from those who would arise from within them by their own pride to do away with those in the church. That is Paul's last thought in terms of holy commission. Let's just get to a third motivation. We have five minutes left, and I think I could do it quickly. So he says, not only are you motivated as elders to stand in a holy tradition and shepherd with a holy commission, but number three, you also share in a holy coronation. You share in a holy coronation. And I get that just from back to 1 Peter 5 and verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let me read that again. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. What a glorious thought that is. Here, Christ is the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd, earlier in chapter 2, he's the shepherd and guardian of their souls, and he is coming back for them, and he brings his reward with him, and here the reward is a crown. It's a crown. It's a coronation. In the book of Revelation, we see also the 24 elders, chapter 4, verses 4 through 10, wearing their golden crowns, are seated on the thrones. You remember that picture very well. What does that mean, a crown for an elder? What, is, what does that speak of? Well, there are passages in the New Testament that speak of all believers receiving some kind of crown. You see that in 2 Timothy 4.8. You see that in James chapter 1, verse 12. The crown of righteousness that Paul says that the Lord will give not only to him but to all believers who have loved his appearing is a crown. The crown of life in the book of James and Revelation is probably a symbol of our just receiving eternal life in heaven. But here in 1 Peter 5, 4, it seems as if the meaning of the crown is to give the elders is stated so that these particular elders in their local churches would understand that they're not to operate in this life for the reward of glory on earth. It is, it is for what you will be granted in heaven. They instead are to labor as a shepherd of God's sheep for the special reward that will come to them from Christ for shepherding his sheep while he is away. The glory of the crowns of this life will fade 
but not the one that he is bringing for them on that very special day. Crowns, as you know, would fade in ancient times because of the quality of the materials used to make them was just very, very poor or unpredictable. But the reason this crown will not fade is because it literally consists of glory. It is a crown of glory. The material used to make this crown is divine and heavenly glory. You may know this, but the custom of the victorious first century Roman generals when they returned from a successful campaign was granted what they called a triumph. And a triumph, a triumph was the apex of just public recognition for the homecoming commander and their captives and the spoils of war and the people. And the general in this triumph wore a crown. He wore a crown of laurel. It was identifying him as like a near divine, near king. And he rode in a four-horse chariot with the streets of Rome and un armed progression, procession with his army, captives, and spoils of war. And everyone would see this, and oh, everyone would hail him in this triumph. And then accompanying the general in his chariot was a slave of his own choosing who was commissioned to stand at his shoulder to perform a very, very specific task. As the roar of the crowd would erupt all around them in the air and the glory of the state was magnified all about them, the chosen slave would whisper into the ear of the victorious general a phrase reserved for those tempted to think themselves of God in any generation. He would whisper, remember, you are only human. The crown would fade for all men and women who wear them fade as well. But the crown of glory from Christ is unfading and the inheritance is eternal and reserved for the one who is faithful to shepherd the sheep of God. Charles Bridges ends our time with this quote from his classic work, The Minister as Shepherd. He has a paragraph that includes the end of his fourth chapter and he paraphrases the Lord's instruction and his last instruction to the apostle Peter. And his paraphrase goes something like this. Simon, son of Jonas, feed my lambs. They are not yours, they are mine. But I wish you to look after them for a while. Tend my sheep, they are not yours. I do not give them to you, they belong to me. Mine they always shall remain, but I ask you to tend them for a season for me. Feed my sheep, they are not yours. None of them shall ever pass from my possession, but I am going away for a few days and I leave them with you. Guard them, feed them, guide them, be good to them for my sake. Follow me, remember my gentleness, my watchfulness, my considerateness, my patience, my compassion, my readiness to help, my swiftness to heal, my gladness to sacrifice. Be the kind of shepherd to my lambs and my sheep that I have been to you. Follow me. That's the motivation for the elders in the church of God. Let's pray. Father, as I even speak these words, I know the thoughts that are going through my mind that I can't even put into expression, concern just, Lord, who is, who is worthy of this? Who is able to do this? Who is it that can function in this way with a conscience that's not seared? And Father, I just thank you for the other men, the plurality of elders here at Grace Church where we can be measured with each other, that we can be encouraging each other, that we can accept the responsibilities that is so great, so vast, so unimaginable in some ways, and yet share those burdens with one another. 
I thank you for what your word says. I ask that you would call men, not only in this generation, but the generations to follow, to rise up, to be these men of God as you have proclaimed, and that they would be watchful over their character, that they would be watchful over their lives and their doctrine, and that we may be able to trust in them as we see them leading us on behalf of you. Thank you for this great privilege and for this great book, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.